Hi, and welcome to Let's Talk About Cities, a podcast dedicated to making complex topics in architecture and urban design more accessible. In today's episode, we'll talk about ecologically sustainable planning, an important issue in the context of climate change as cities consume about 80% of all energy produced and in 2030 are prognosed to emit 74% of greenhouse gases. We'll start with an introduction to the challenges facing us in dealing with climate change and lessening its impacts on the planet and on our lives. We'll then present some more or less established strategies that can be applied within architecture and urban design to deal with those challenges while improving the quality of life in cities. And also we'll discuss different approaches to the topic. I'm Matthias. And I'm Katharina. We hope you'll enjoy this episode and join the discussion. Let's talk about cities. According to the UN, the Anthropocene climate change and its consequences are the most acute issues of our time. The concentrations of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere are at their highest point in over 3 million years and making up two-thirds of those gases is carbon dioxide, which is produced largely through burning of fossil fuels. The gases trap heat in the atmosphere, raising the Earth's temperature. Some of the consequences of the warming of the Earth are changed weather patterns which negatively impact food production melting sea ice which raises sea levels and increases the risk of catastrophic flood events, as well as deadly heat waves, destruction of ecosystems and a reduced global water supply. But what's the specific role of cities in the context of climate change, Katarina? Well, cities are nodes of infrastructure, economic activity and of course people, and they are therefore especially vulnerable to heat waves, floods and also water scarcity. And countries in the global south are especially at risk, but industrialized nations also increasingly face the ramifications of global warming. For example, in 2003, a European heat wave is estimated to have caused the death of 70,000 people. And um, 70% of the largest European cities are seriously threatened by flooding as they're located on coasts. Mm -hmm. But as centers of civilization, cities not only face the largest threats of climate change. They also, ever since the Industrial Revolution, um, carry the most responsibility for its existing at all, and um, therefore also have the most responsibility in lessening its future effects. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, and I think many people aren't even aware of that, but cities consume roughly 80% of all energy And in 2030, they are prognosed to produce 74% of all greenhouse gases. And um, as many of you know, the people that will live in urban areas will continue to rise. And with the population growth, the built area of cities increases too, three times as fast. And um, those expanding cities cause higher demand for lighting, heating and cooling as well as further and also larger roads and other ecologically and economically expensive infrastructure. Yeah, and also in addition to the size and the population uh, of a city, its urban form is a fundamental aspect 
of its ecological sustainability. Can you, can you maybe explain that a bit further? Yeah, there's a proven correlation between the compactness of a city and its emission. So compact cities, in comparison to urban sprawls, consume less energy for transport, they need less extensive infrastructure, and they also tend to implement more energy-efficient solutions. So think of LA or Houston as examples of urban sprawl, compared to compact cities as often found in Europe, like Paris or Barcelona. So cities where urban sprawl is taking place, um, we could say for for people maybe not knowing this word, is that they're spread out. Yeah, yeah. typically with large areas um, of suburban houses outside the, the main city, which is typical in, around the world as there was a certain period where that was particularly popular. But even now, many people like to have a house a bit further out yeah I, th I think that's so funny that there's oftentimes this picture of this wooden house somewhere in the outskirts and portrayed as being so sustainable and maybe the materials are that it's built of but having one house in the nowhere will never be sustainable like that because all the infrastructure has to be built for that and um yeah precisely and, and for example even now there are proponents of suburban housing as you know a sustainable alternative but uh, the the equation doesn't really work out because uh, it's a key point of of uh, why density is important and is um proposed by by so many that with more people on less surface uh, you also have more efficient modes of transportation so if you think of a suburb or, or a city with sprawl, the people tend to drive with their car and there tend to be shopping malls or large uh, convenience stores outside the city to where they drive. Oftentimes the infrastructure for bikes or for pedestrians aren't that good. So wherever you go, you're going to drive, you're going to drive your kids to school and so on. So all of that is connected. Yeah. And, and um, That's really what it's about. Also, the the mode of transport you're then choosing. But I think we'll maybe go a bit deeper into that later on. Yeah. Let's see. But we can, for now, say that how cities are planned and built, for sure, greatly influences the emissions of greenhouse gases, but also determines how well they can deal with effects of global warming. So their resilience. Yeah, um, there are two aspects of responding to climate change that are called mitigation and adaptation. So mitigation is the attempt to avoid further increases uh, in Earth's temperature. And you do that by reducing the emission of greenhouse gases. So uh, whether it be more um, energy produced, not by fossil fuels, renewable energy and so on, or less cars and, and trucks and so on. And adaptation then is the realization that the consequences of global warming are already making themselves felt and it's the effort to increase resilience to their effects by adapting our lifestyle and, and our habitats. Mm -hmm. And I think what is really important to mention here and also great is that mitigation and adaptation can actually often be achieved in one and the same planning measure. Mm -hmm. And um, there are strategies and, and methods that... Um, can be applied to deal, for example, with urban heat islands uh, or air pollution and resource consumption that can reduce emissions and also increase resilience at the same time. There was this 
report Climate Change in Cities by Jeffrey Raven of the New York Institute of Technology that lists four main strategies of mitigation and adaptation. So maybe we can go into those and, and you can tell us maybe <laughs> what they are. Yeah, they're really good examples precisely of that, of, of um, in one method dealing with mitigation and adaptation. So the first method he mentions is the reduction of waste, heat and emissions of greenhouse gases by introducing more energy efficient urban systems. Um, that includes, for example, access to mass transit and walkability. So actually what we talked about yeah. before. Mm. Um, and then the second method is modified form and layout of urban districts and buildings to improve the microclimate. So if you optimize for daylight, heat absorption and wind, you can reduce the emissions from active cooling example. Um, the third method is the use of building materials that are heat resistant and have reflective surfaces because um, obviously if they are absorbent rather than reflective then they will absorb the heat um, save it and release it into their surroundings which warms the microclimate. And then the last method is uh, increased proportion of vegetative area which cools the microclimate and lessens the burden on stormwater management systems because can offer shade and is also it tends to be reflective rather than absorbent and um, slows down the the infiltration of uh, rainwater and also can clean it. Mm -hmm. Which of course is really important when you have heavy rain events that the stormwater management systems are not stressed beyond their capacity. That's uh, really helpful, I think, as an overview, but also, of course, a lot of information. Maybe we can take a step back and go over some terms we're using. I mean, we will put some of them in the glossary or, or something in the show notes, but um, I think we can also talk about it now because in the discourse of sustainability, there are so many scientific theories and also industry-specific concepts and, frankly, also many buzzwords. Mm -hmm. So... Like, for example, what does sustainability actually mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, companies across all industries like to add the word sustainable to their products and, and services. Um, but you, you can question if they're really sustainable or if it's just a term that's being used for marketing purposes. Because it, you know, appeals to a certain demographic and can also help improve the image of the company. But oftentimes without really taking a step towards sustainability, um, that's called greenwashing. And I would say there's definitely a need for a responsible and critical language to focus on concrete efforts that really make a difference. Mm -hmm. I mean, sustainability was defined um, in 1987 by the UN Brundtland Commission. And um, I think I'll quote that here because I think it perfectly describes what it's about. It's meeting the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. Um, the origin of the concept actually comes from a German book on sustainable practice in forestry. And um, it's about making sure that more trees are growing than are cut down. So 
one can really imagine what it's about. And in 2005, three pillars of sustainability were defined, economical, environmental, and social sustainability. But in 2010, a fourth dimension, the cultural dimension, was also added. And today, I think we'll mostly concentrate on ecological sustainability. Mm -hmm. However, they are always intertwined, and I think you cannot really separate them from mm. each other. For example, if you take this example that, that we were mentioning before to make cities walkable, then of course it's about not only that less infrastructure has to be built, but also possibly people being more healthy and then also meeting more often on the streets. Exactly, yeah. Because in cars you're in this box and then by foot you're more likely to meet your neighbor. Yeah. So of course the social dimension will come into place. Yeah, or for example, um, in terms of resilience and, and rainwater systems, um, you can save a lot of money in having good rainwater management systems to avoid the flooding of, of buildings and infrastructure that might otherwise uh, be costly in, in damages. So both ecological and economical dimension. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in urban planning and architecture, there's also greenwashing and there are renderings with trees on skyscrapers, for example, and glass and steel buildings that are described as sustainable. Um, cities are still in parts planned with cars in mind. Uh, in Vienna, for example, a relatively progressive city in, in terms of urban planning, a motorway tunnel is being planned that would go underneath a national park. And there's also a, um, a part of a highway being planned to, to go over very fruitful fields. Uh, actually very good uh, agricultural land. Yeah, I believe it's important to be critical, but you can also acknowledge what cities are already doing and that there are many cities that are taking action and actually implementing a lot of measures towards being a more environmentally friendly city. But when we go back to what we said before, compact cities are more sustainable than sprawling cities. And that's also... As you said, the reason why many cities try to be more dense, that's not only about meeting the needs of housing, workspaces and the infrastructure without costly expansion, but also um, if you, as I said before, if you have those different needs in close proximity to each other, um, it also promotes walking or cycling or using public transport instead of going by car all mm -hmm. the time. Yeah. And um, this type of planning is also called transit-oriented development. So you actually try to build closely around, for example, um, bus stations, and then people are more likely to use it because mm -hmm. it's so close and just more convenient. And I guess that's also something that um, should be kept in mind, sustainability has to be the better and the easier choice, mm -hmm. and then people will not feel that it's a burden to, to use their bike, but they will feel that it's uh, cheaper and faster, for mm -hmm. example. And when we look within Europe, there is the mayor of Paris, for example. She's called Anne Hidalgo. And she aims to, besides many other measures, to have the so-called 15-minute city. So going to work, school, buying groceries or... Also, going to the doctor, for example, shouldn't take more than 15 minutes. And Hidalgo aims to shift the prioritization from cars to non-motorized modes of transport. And she wants to do that by lowering speed limits for cars, by creating new bike lanes, and also 
converting parking spots to common areas and making the banks of the Seine car-free. By that, she, of course, doesn't only make the city more accessible, but she also lowers air and noise pollution. And then healthy mobility is promoted by encouraging people to walk or bike. Mm -hmm. And in addition to that, less cars and especially less sealed surfaces, such as roads, um, as well as more green space in the city, reduces the effect of urban heat islands. That's a phenomenon which arises when the warming rays of the sun are absorbed by streets and buildings, and thus they increase the local temperature to a dangerous level. And it's made worse during heat waves, and especially during tropic nights, nights that are so warm that they don't give the buildings and streets a chance to cool down after the sun is set. The temperature difference between a city and its surrounding countryside can be as high as 12 degrees Celsius. Mm -hmm. That's insane. Yeah. And uh, in the 2003 heatwave, for example, that you mentioned, about 30,000 of the 70,000 dead were in France. And they've now taken measures to lower the dangers of overheating. For example, they provide air-conditioned cool rooms in every district and they keep parks open 24-7. Yeah, those are definitely cool um, and smart measures um, or actions that have been taken. But I'm not sure if they really tackle the issue of sustainability as much as the symptoms. They are actually examples of adaptation so that they adapt to the effects of climate change, which of course is necessary because we can all feel, for example, that it's getting too hot to handle in the mm -hmm. summers. But to really make a change, there are much more fundamental and also more ambitious initiatives needed. Yeah. Absolutely. You're never going to get ahead of the problem if you just react to it as it comes. You have to try to look into the future uh, and, and do a prognosis and prepare in advance. Mm. So as you mentioned at the start, cities consume roughly 80% of all energy and in 10 years will produce about 80% of all greenhouse gases. And the building industry alone is estimated to cost about 40% of global emissions of carbon dioxide. Um, you can compare that to airplanes, which cost about 2%. And a lot of that is due to transport and production of building materials. And so it would be helpful if projects don't use so much glass, steel and concrete, the manufacturing of which causes high amounts of emissions. And also glass and concrete, for example, need a lot of sand, which is also becoming a product of scarcity because mm -hmm. there's just not enough sand to go around. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely feel we're at the time where a shift is taking place and also many offices look at how they can actually reuse um, materials that mm -hmm. are already on the project site. But we, I think we are also on the point where a lot of greenwashing is happening um, and one has to be really careful what, what can be called sustainable because it shouldn't be a thing to call a project sustainable only because it's built out of wood when that wood, for example, has been unsustainably foraged or shipped from the other side of the world. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, it would help to look at pre-industrial vernacular practices and um, use material from the region where the project is built or, yeah, as I said in the beginning, use recycled material. But yeah, that takes a lot of um, knowledge on the one hand and um, time and to really... And oftentimes it's also more expensive to use local materials. Yeah, but products. now I was talking about the if you really look at what is on the site and um, 
make some kind of catalog or so what what can sure, be but then that's reused. also a lot of work which is time and money exactly and many um within those competitions i think there are oftentimes not the fitting requirements that one would need to actually do that sort of practice and it's hard to monetize that kind of work and that kind of time and of course you have a lot of um, companies that are not very happy with doing that kind of practices and that would be happy to produce new materials that are used. That, that of course, as well, there are large industries with powerful lobbies um, that, of course, don't want to sell less of what they produce and offer. And so that's a really important point, absolutely. Um, but even if you solve the, the issue of, of the production and transport of the materials for the buildings, um, the main source of emissions is the heating, cooling and lighting of the buildings. And there are low tech solutions for that too. Like for example, if you have proper access to daylight, you reduce the need for artificial light. And that's in any case, really important health wise. We need natural light. And instead of air conditioning, you can protect the windows from strong direct sunlight. Uh, preferably through outside shading elements and that lowers the need for cooling in the summer and well insulated materials and a compact building shape lowers the heat loss from inside and thereby the the need for heating in winter mm -hmm. those are really great low-tech approaches but there are also advanced computer tools that help optimizing design choices it's not only like it reaches far beyond only doing um solar and shadow studies um it's also of course yeah daylighting but also wind analysis and they all help decide on the urban layout and also the shapes of the buildings yeah and there are also more direct measures of dealing with the energy consumption um, the city of vienna for example offers a public map which shows the potential for solar panels on the roofs of the city and they've stipulated that Every new building has to have solar panels proportional to the size of the building. And another interesting measure is that of using waste heat. So for example, from subway tunnels or from the ground around subway tunnels that um, take up the heat that the trains produce, mm -hmm. um, you can use that heat uh, to actually heat buildings with. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. A trend that is growing is... Also that of local production of vegetables in urban gardens that I quickly want to mention before wrapping up. Those pop-up gardens for self-sustenance were promoted in the UK, US and also Germany during World War II and more recently in Detroit after the 2008 financial crisis. If I remember correctly, we have actually uh, quickly talked about it uh, in the episode of Red Vienna, but... Nowadays, more and more projects also propose gardens or greenhouses on unused roofs, for example, or also integrated in new developments on roofs or in yards. And that is something of a further step than so-called green roofs or green facades, which serve to improve the microclimate and also increase the biodiversity within cities. And I think with this example, it also becomes very clear that it's not only about the ecological dimension to, for example, increase biodiversity. It's also about the economical dimension because people are 
maybe spending less on groceries. And um, lastly, there's, of course, the social dimension because people come together, they do gardening together. And then there's this uh, form of community that is built up entirely upon that. Mm -hmm. So you actually have all three dimensions or maybe also the cultural one, you know, and then you have all dimensions of sustainability met with one measure or action. Exactly, which is really great when you can achieve that. So it's really positive if you uh, look to do that and, and don't just take the simple route of, uh, say, just having a green facade and saying, look how sustainable we are. I, I saw a picture the other day, which was amazing, of a truck, um, like a, a, a van, and uh, on the side it said, um, yeah, the company name and artificial green facades, <laughs> which is amazing, <laughs> you know, takes away the whole point. Um, but I guess achieves the point if all you're looking to do is appear sustainable mm -hmm. or, or ecological. Yeah, it, it feels like we'll have to go deeper into some of these topics in separate episodes. But for now, this has been an introduction to ecological sustainability in urban planning. Let us know what your thoughts on the topic are, uh, what you would like to hear more about, and stay tuned for the next episode. Let's talk about cities. Mm -hmm.